Well, as we've already talked about, today we are going to think about thinking. And as we think about thinking, we have to admit that thinking about thinking is often neglected, right? Like we look at social media and it seems like people don't really think. When we look at the news, it seems like people don't really think. When we look at people on the street, it seems like people don't think. When I was thinking about this sermon series a year ago, and I was interviewing different people in our community and around Alaska about worldview, I spoke with a University of Alaska professor who teaches um, about worldview, not necessarily a Christian worldview, but just worldview in general. And I asked her, how do you think people think about worldview on the daily street, like normal people, how do they think about worldview? And she says, honestly, Alan, I don't think people ever think about worldview. We are a culture that just kind of goes on autopilot. We don't think about thinking. And, and before we start to say, well, that's just those people out there, right? Like us Christians, we think. I believe, and I, and I know from experience, and you probably do too, that in the church we are too often confronted with a mindless Christianity. Just think about some of these things. You've probably heard them. Maybe you've even said them. I'm not into theology. I just love Jesus. Doctrine divides. Love unites. Theological education makes someone arrogant. I read an article this week by a man who confesses to be a Christian, and the article was titled this, Jesus doesn't care about doctrine, and neither should you. In the article, the the gentleman says this, It seems to me that if we truly want a life of loving relationships, we need to care less about doctrines or worldview, and more about a person. When we let our love for others be what unites us, then we have a life full of meaningful relationships. Seeking out relationships or fellowship based on doctrinal agreements is sad and ineffective. End quote. In other words, this man is saying, if we say it differently, Jesus doesn't care about truth. And neither should you. In ministry, many an expositor, if you do expository preaching, which is what I do, it's what Kenan does, it's what we're taught to do. If you do expository preaching, you'll hear something like this if you stay around long enough. Pastor, you would make a better professor than a pastor. I not only heard that early in my ministry, but I even had a guy take me out to breakfast to tell me that and told me that. God had shown him that I was better for a college than a pulpit. Does how we think matter? Is knowledge important for a Christian? Does the New Testament claim that biblical doctrine and truth, they're they're unimportant? Is the Christian life really just about relationships and truth claims and unimportant? Is it more about how we feel? Should the church cast aside a search for truth, free ourselves from historical, biblical doctrine, and instead sing together love in any language, straight from the heart, pulls us all together, never apart? That's actually a song if you didn't know that. Well, this morning, 
our topic must be important to you. You must hear what the Bible has to say because Christ tells us in Matthew 22, 37 that we are called to love the Lord God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. With all of our mind. God has given us a cognitive ability and we are called to love Him with it. God does not merely love a portion of us, but He loves our whole person, and we are called to respond to that love with our whole person. God doesn't just save our hearts, He saves our minds as well, and we are to love Him with both. But before we get started, we have to, we have to note a common church objection. They'll say, well, wait a minute, that's gonna, if you talk about knowledge and doctrine, that makes you a Pharisee. Surely those guys are one example of too much thinking, right? Friends, Christ never calls out the Pharisees for loving truth and God's instruction too much. You will not find that in the Bible. He calls them out without variation for two things. You take your laws and raise them to the level of God's instruction. Or you make a big deal of God's instruction, but you don't really follow it. You're hypocrites. Never once does Christ say, you pursue God's instruction too much. You guys, just, you just love God's word too much. You seek holiness too much. No. So this morning, friends, you must understand that God has given you a cognitive ability and you are called to love him and to serve him with it. Let's look at Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. We're going to read the same passage we read last week. And we are going to dig out of it a deeper understanding of knowledge. Genesis 1, first chapter of the Bible, starting in verse 26. We read that, in verse, starting in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, and the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw to all that he made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, then morning the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. And on the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. For on it he rested from all his work of creation. These are the records of the heaven and the earth concerning the creation. At the time that God, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, 
and there was no man to work on the ground, to work the ground. But the mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out of the garden to water the garden, went out, out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedlam and Onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east from Assyria, and the fourth is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone, and I I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over a man, the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she is taken from man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that we have your word, that we might know, that we might understand, that we might learn who we are and who you are. God, I pray that you would guide us in the next few minutes as we study your word. If anything unprofitable or unhelpful would come from my mouth, God, I pray it would fall away from your people's ears. God, be with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In Genesis, we see that the Creator is the source of all knowledge. The Creator is the source of all knowledge. God gave man the ability to reason, and God gave man specific instructions. God gave us the ability to reason in the beginning, and also gave us specific instructions. Now we're thinking about worldview. Our worldview is the lens through which we make sense of the world. Scottish professor James Orr introduced the word. It's a German word. I won't try and butcher it. Well, I will try and butcher it. It's, it's Weltanschauung. I, I just messed that up. But this word, this German word, really means view of the world. And in the 1800s, he, he kind of coined that phrase in the lectures. 
series. Not that they didn't have worldviews before the 1800s, but he coined that phrase. Ronald Nash says, A Christian worldview is not a collection of theological tidbits and little pieces to be debated, but a complete life system. So our worldview should be coherent, and it's a complete life system. And every worldview, every life system has to answer five questions. Who is God? Is there a God? If He exists, what is He like? Why is there something instead of nothing? How should we live? Who or what is man? And in the question we're going to talk about today, how do we know? How do we find knowledge? What is knowledge? And to consider this question, we're looking at the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of time. We're looking at the beginning of Genesis, because Genesis is the appropriate place to think about worldview, the foundations of our worldview. So we're going to look at the passage I just read, but we're also going to jump to the New Testament because kind of a lot's happened since the creation of the world. Like, sin has entered the world, right? That's a pretty big thing. Christ has come. Christ has died for believers. And so we also want to look at the New Testament and bridge that that gap between the old and the new. And as we think about worldview, because we live this side of the fall, we're going to look at the New Testament. As we think about worldview and knowledge in the first verses of Genesis, we see this, that God gave man an intellect unlike the rest of creation. Look with me at verse 27 in chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. He created them in the image of God. He created them male and female. If you think back to last week, we labored a lot to argue that man is made in the image of God. We see that all throughout these first two chapters. The Imago Dei. We are different than the rest of creation. Every single human being that you have ever met, no matter how crazy or, or whatever, is made in the image of God. Every single person bears the image of God. And God is a rational being. Logic and wisdom flow from God. R.C. Sproul said this, Rationality has its foundation in the divine mind Himself. And we are made in His image. So human minds have the ability to think, they have the ability to reason, because we are made in the image of God. Our minds separate us from the rest of creation and reflect our Creator. The fact that we have a conscience reflects the fact that we are made in the image of God. Now, when I met Sarah, she really liked these movies, and we were talking about with somebody the other day, um, she really liked these movies uh, about the planet, I can't remember the name of them now, uh, like Planet Earth and Human Planet, and all these documentaries. She said when she was a kid, she had this VHS set, and she'd watch it, and she really liked the scenes where like a, a lion would take down a gazelle or something, right? And it's kind of funny you talk about the differences in marriages, because we watch those now, and she's like, get him, get him. She's ready for the lion to get the gazelle, and I'm usually on the other end. I'm like, get away, little buddy. You can do it. And, um, but you, you watch these, these videos, right, and, and these killer whales, and, and they're smart, right? They are smart animals, and you watch these killer whales, and they'll get together, and they'll, they'll create a wave to knock a seal off an ice block or whatever, and then they you know, rip up and eat the seal, right? But you know what I never saw in any of these videos? You never see a, a killer whale come away from just like ripping a seal apart and saying, man, what's wrong with me? Like, why am I so violent? 
Why do I do? No, they just go in to eat the seal. They're hungry, they eat. Right? Like they, they, we watched another video the other day of this couple somewhere in Alaska. They're on the beach and they're having this beautiful Alaska wedding, right? Like think like a perfect day outside. And they're on the beach, and all of a sudden you hear this screaming noise, and everyone turns and looks, and this brown bear is just like destroying this moose, like a little bit. Like, like, and it's not like during the party, like it's like in the middle of their vows. And like the, the couple look over, and I mean, they show the bear, and the bear is just like destroying this moose who's like screaming. That bear didn't say, man, why did I wreck that wedding? Like I could have done this somewhere else. Right? You, you, you never see an animal do that. Why is that our conscience, that, 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 that part of us that makes us think, that makes us reason, that makes us have regret? That is a, 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 a reflection of the mind of God, according to these theologians I just mentioned. Our conscience separates us from the rest of creation. We can think and we can reason because we are made in the image of God but that image has been marred, right? We haven't got to chapter 3 yet, but we know that because we've read ahead. The, the image within us has been marred, but not completely wiped away. But there are noetic effects of sin. There are noetic effects of sin. So what does that word noetic mean? It, it, it relates to the activity of our mind, right? Ronald Nash says a person's noetic structure is the sum total of everything they believe. So our noetic ability, our ability to think and reason, has been impacted by the fall. It's faulty. It's corrupted by original sin. Just think for a minute, if Adam and Eve had not sinned in the garden, and if there was no fall, that we wouldn't have any ignorance. We wouldn't get distracted. We wouldn't have miscommunication or forgetfulness, and we wouldn't come to false conclusions. So the next time you struggle with a math problem, right, you can think about the noetic effects of sin. As one of my professors said in seminary, could you imagine Adam's ability to do calculus? I don't know if they had to find derivatives in the garden or not, but if they had, he'd have been very good at it pre-fall. But after the fall, there is a noetic consequence. Our ability to reason and our ability to think have been affected. But it brings us to our second, <clears throat> our second point. God gave us another way of knowing as well. He gave us instruction. God gave man the ability to, to, to be rational, but he also gives us the ability, or gives us specific instruction. Look with me at verse 28. In verse 28, God says, God bless them, and, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So, so God not only gives man the ability to reason, but he gives him direction. He says, go and do these things. Go, go and multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, rule the earth. Like, Adam doesn't have to wonder how to fill his day. He's got instruction. Look at verse 29. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wild life of the earth. So he gets instruction on what's permissible, like this is food for you. These are the things you can go and eat. This is what you should do. This is what you can do to go and eat. But look at verse chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So he gives him instruction in what to do. He gives him instruction in what is permissible, but he also gives Adam instruction in what is not permissible. You're free to eat from any tree of the garden except that one. You can eat from any tree, but you do not have permission to do this. Instruction on how to fill his day, what is permissible and what is not permissible, along with the ability to reason, along with this noetic structure, God gives Adam specific instructions. So this is the point we should probably talk about, something called general revelation and special revelation. General revelation, when you hear people in the church talk about that, is general truth that someone can know from nature. So general truth that we can work out on our own. Jonathan Gibson says, science is an interpretation of general revelation, but the science community assumes a lot. But we also have already, already talked about the fact that our, our cognitive ability is, is broken. Right? Like our minds are fallen. And we will eventually twist and distort general revelation, so we need special revelation, which is God's intentional intervention to make His mind and will available. Right? Some examples of special revelation are Moses at the burning bush. Right? Like there's a bush telling Moses, this is what you're going to do. Special revelation could be considered here, where God's telling Adam directly, like, you can eat of this tree, but not of this tree. Miraculous demonstrations in the Bible, direct communication, like say at Jesus' baptism, where the Father says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Special revelation is also divine inspiration or the Holy Scriptures. And special revelation must trump what we believe we understand in general revelation. What the Bible says, friends, God says, it's one of the most foundational sentences to Christianity. What the Bible says, God says. The Bible is from God and authoritative in our lives, as we talked about this morning with the Proverbs. Like We seek knowledge from God. It speaks to how we should live. John Calvin said, Scripture is the spectacles through which we see the world. So we make sense in what we are seeing through God's Word. So as we think about thinking, friends, and we think about Genesis, we see in these first verses that because we are created in God's image, we have this unique ability to reason. We have a conscience that other creatures do not have. They were not given, but that is fallen. And then we have direct revelation that we might know God's will. As we think about thinking, we have the ability to reason, but it is fallen, and we have Direct revelation from God. So as we think about our thinking being marred, all kinds of manner of shenanigans arise from that, and all kinds of systems of thought arise that distort God's good design. And there are a lot of different worldviews we could talk about. But for the purpose of this sermon series, we've limited that to three. Three prominent competing worldviews. Modernity, postmodernity, and Marxism. So let's think about those for a minute. 
In modernity, when they're talking about knowledge, remember that modernity means progress. Modernity means progress. In the naturalist worldview, our cognitive faculties arose at a blind, mindless, purposes, purposeless processes. So we started as some single-cell organism, evolved into monkeys, and then from monkeys on into people. And over the courses of billions of years, we developed the ability to reason, while other creatures did not. They remained dumb, we developed the ability to reason. And in this worldview, truth and knowledge is only found through the scientific method. It is only found through investigation. The modernist was confident in their approach that this approach would reveal truth by means of reason alone. And that word confident is important. The modernist rejects God's special revelation as a source of truth and is confident in their human ability alone, their ability to reason. That is the only way you can find truth, and they rejected revelation. In the modern mind, science, technology, more education, this stuff is going to solve the world's problems. They're going to be able to cure the world's ills through progress. Through progress. And the modernists will often reject wisdom of former times as ignorant and unhelpful. They believe themselves to be intellectually superior to those of people gone past. We see this in a show that Sarah and I used to watch on the BBC where a woman tells a pastor, you know, you just try and tell people how to live out of your dusty old book. Right? So there's an intellectual superiority there. Do you got your dusty old book? We have our method. Each generation may build upon the technology of a former generation, but friends, make no mistake, no generation started from scratch. As the example I've used before, the guy that invented the ceiling Tupperware didn't start with nothing. He had a jar with a lid. When we believe ourselves to be superior intellectually to previous generations, we are guilty of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. If you find yourself with this, this, this disease, chronological snobbery, and you believe we are intellectually superior to previous generations, not that technology has advanced, but that your mind is better than a mind of someone 2,000 years ago, I want you to reflect on Roman roads that still exist today as you drive through our pothole-filled streets on the way home today. And if you don't believe me, just pull into Safeway. (laughs) But do it slowly, because I do not want you to wreck your vehicle. I want you to consider the math the Romans used to build aqueducts, where they, 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 they only slope approximately one inch on average over the course of a mile, so that they don't drop too fast or don't move the water at all. And the mines it took to do that without iPads. Without technology. And then when you get home, I want you to curl up. You can Google it on your iPad with a book of Augustine, Calvin, Athanasius, Edwards, some of those old guys, and I want you to just easily read through it and think about how dumb they were. Modernity says we've advanced. Postmodernity, though, it just simply says you do you. Postmodernity rejects any claims that truth is fixed, universal, or absolute. 
Not only does postmodernity reject Christian claims to truth, but they will reject modern claims to truth. In postmodernity, truth is relative, everything is subjective, and meta narratives are rejected. In postmodernity, our feelings are held above reason itself. It's not just Christian claims, but it's scientific claims. All of it's limited because there's no such thing as truth. In the postmodern world, truth is made rather than found. I talked about Brave at the beginning of this series. Think about the, the gal in Brave, and I like the movie Brave, don't get me wrong, but we have to think about the worldview that's being put forward there. In the movie Brave, they come to the conclusion at the end that, hey, we have to make our own fate. Postmodernity only ascribes meaning to the reader rather than the author. Right? So when you read a book, you're not reading it to see what the author intended to say. You're reading it to find out what it means to me. You heard someone say that? You read a book and you say, well, this is what Augustine says. And they say, well, what this means to me doesn't matter what the guy who wrote it thought. What it means to me Postmodernity believes that what is true for one group may not be true for another. Each group construct their own truth. There are no universal truths. We can all have our own truth. Postmodernity not only has, has books, but they also have art. You say, what in the world? They got art too? Yeah, postmodernity has art, and it's often nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense. Because in postmodernity, there's no truth. But postmodernity also has architecture. So you might walk into a postmodern building and think, this building makes no sense. Why is there a column standing there that's not supporting anything? Well, it's postmodern. It's not supposed to make sense. But as Al Mohler has quipped, while a postmodern person may want a postmodern architect, they never want a postmodern engineer. Right? You don't want a guy pouring your concrete who thinks truth is relative. No one wants a postmodern heart surgeon. No one wants someone who's going to open you up right before they give you that gas, says, you know, I'm just going to get in there and find my truth today. You're saying, no, 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 where did you go to medical school? And no one wants a postmodern pilot. However, our society does want postmodern counselors that will tell boys they can be girls. Our society does want postmodern churches who will do anything but call something a sin. In postmodernity, what feels good, it trumps truth. Feels good is going to win every damn time over truth. When I think of the postmodern, though, I think about Abraham Lincoln. And I've heard this story, you know, it's said in a couple different settings, but it's always ascribed to Abraham Lincoln. And there's a story about one day he's campaigning and he, or something, and he's talking to a group of people, and he says to a guy, you know, like, say he just points out, like, Keenan, I'm going to point at him, so I pick on him, and they say, Keenan, if we call a lamb's tail a leg, how many legs does a lamb have? And the man says, five. And Abraham Lincoln says, wrong, four, because a tail is not a leg. But in a postmodern world, it could be. Lastly, Marxism. In Marxism, like modernity, it's progress. And it's interesting when thinking about knowledge and worldview and thinking about Marxism that Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud, for those of you who follow any kind of counseling stuff, and Sigmund Freud argued that the reason people believe in God is that their cognitive equipment is malfunctioning. So they start with the baseline that if you believe in God, there's automatically something wrong with you, something wrong with your brain. 
Marx sees the world through the lens of class struggle, so it's oppressors and oppressed. Remember, he has a meta-narrative, but it's, it's the humanity started with these, these hunter-gatherers, and then went to a slave system, and then feudal system, and then democracy, uh, socialism, and eventually it's going to communism. In the comprehensive world system of Marxism, mankind is progressing, and he's progressing toward a communist euphoria, utopia. I guess it could be euphoria too. Marx believed that a nation's economic factors are the most important factors of that nation. He believed that anyone who gets in the way of economic equality must be flattened. It must be flattened. Where do we see this in pop culture? You know, I've had a reference for each. It pains me to say it, and some of maybe you older guys who grew up with classic rock, but we can see a good picture of this in the Canadian Rush Band's song, The Trees. You've never heard the song? The story is a story song, and it goes like this. The maples believe the oaks are just too lucky, and they grab up all the light. And the oaks are wondering why the maples can't just be happy in their shade. And the maples are shouting oppression, and the oaks are shaking their head. And the song ends with this line. It says, Now there is no more oak oppression, for they passed a noble law. Now all the trees are kept equal by hatchet, axe, and saw. So if you're looking at an example of where what started in the university filters down through our minds through media, you can look at the rock band Rush as one example. So I hope you see here, as as we think about competing worldviews, and we spend a lot of time on this because we think about worldviews and thinking, it's natural we're going to spend longer here, so I apologize for keeping you later. I hope you see how these competing worldviews can confuse and cause confusion in the church because we live in the world. We're not of the world, but we are in the world. And so what does the Bible say that we are to do about it? When we go home today and listen to our Rush songs and when we turn on Brave or the BBC show, well, I have three verses from the New Testament that are helpful as you think through this. First, Romans.